Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. And uh, you can follow along inside as, as it's being read aloud. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I want to welcome everyone uh, to Good News Church. Uh, before I launch off into this sermon uh, about the mocking of our Lord Jesus Christ from uh, Matthew 15, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together. And we always do this because it's uh, the power of the Spirit. Uh, that brings illumination and clarity and conviction and change into our lives. So let's bow our heads in, in prayer. Gracious Father, we humble our hearts before you, and we put ourselves in a position where we say that um, apart from you, there is no insight and no understanding. So we pray that by your grace, that you would bring light to our eyes, uh, illumination to our hearts, that we would understand uh, the power, the sacrifice, and the love of the cross, and what that means for our lives. And during this Lenten season, help us to have a, a heart that is re reflective um, upon our own lives so that we may be more and more like you. So we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Once again, uh, welcome everyone to Good News Church, and uh, as I said in my prayer, this is the Lenten season, and therefore this is the season before we celebrate the greatest uh, day on the church calendar, and that great day is Easter. And the reason why Easter um, is so great is because we remember and we celebrate that death does not hold final sway. Uh, because there is a resurrection. Uh, it's that resurrection that gives us hope, and it's that resurrection that gives us life. So in no way, shape, or form do I want to minimize uh, the glorious and the celebratory note of the resurrection. Uh, but before we get to the resurrection, uh, we need to focus on uh, the passion of Christ and what he underwent 
before the cross. Because when you look at those two um, events, the passion and the resurrection, it gives us insight into uh, the pattern of our lives as well. And therefore we, uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, must certainly remember the resurrection, but also remember that God calls us uh, to a life of suffering at times. And therefore what I want to do um, is to look at that pattern. And more specifically, look at the fact that it says in uh, Mark 15 that the Lord Jesus uh, was mocked. And uh, the verses go on uh, for quite some time, and it gives us uh, a depiction of the mockery that Jesus um, endured. And therefore, I want to say to our congregation right from the beginning, anyone who wants to live a life that is godly, anyone who wants to live a life um, with abandon for Christ, anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, I could almost guarantee to you that you will not be honored in our world, uh, but oftentimes you will have to endure uh, mockery, whether it be um, outspoken or silent, but in the end, mockery will be the result. And we, as believers, need to be cognizant um, of that fact. And that's what I want to do today, to encourage all of us to remember the passion and the mockery of Christ. Uh, as we approach um, Easter Sunday and the glorious resurrection. Uh, let me set the stage then of what takes place here. When we look at this text, um, we really do see uh, the mocking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning, um, it says that a battalion comes, the whole battalion, and that battalion is probably a tenth of a legion, a Roman legion, uh, which equals 6,000 people. Therefore, this battalion is probably 600 men, 600 strong armed men, and they come before one person, and that one person is Jesus. They clothe him in purple, and the reason why they are clothing him in purple because in the ancient world, the color purple uh, signifies uh, royalty. Uh, they're mocking Jesus, in other words, because the charge against Jesus is that he is the king of the Jews. Uh, what makes this interpretation even more solid is they, they twist uh, these thorns and make it into a mock crown. They put it on the head of Jesus and they beat him. And after that, this battalion, uh, 600 strong, uh, they add insult to injury because they pay homage to him by kneeling down in a mocking fashion saying that he is the king of the Jews. Later on, they strip him, they continue to mock him, and they even make a placard that says, King of the Jews, and that will accompany Christ to Golgotha, the place of the skulls, and it will be placed on the cross of Jesus. The common people are also mocking Jesus, according to this passage. Uh, they are shouting, Save yourself, you who said that he could destroy this temple in three days and raise it up again, save yourself. Not just the soldiers then, but the common people as well. Uh, the religious people and the scribes are there as well. And he says, and they begin to say, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. And you can see the, the sarcasm, the hatred 
uh, the vitriol and the mocking of these priests and religious leaders. And finally, they say, according to Mark, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. Uh, so for some odd, 15 some odd verses, verse after verse, we see mockery on top of mockery on top of mockery. And let me make a couple of observations uh, based upon uh, this passage of mockery. Uh, the first observation is no matter how you uh, compartmentalize or divide uh, humanity, all of humanity is in one chorus and they're doing the same thing. They're mocking Jesus. Uh, Pastor Sam gave a, a sermon last week, and when we tie that message and that insight into this passage from a historical point of view, we can even say that Pontius Pilate, the, the leader, is implicated in this mocking. So the leader of the people is mocking Christ. Uh, we said this battalion of three, um, 600 men, they're there too, and they are mocking Christ. The common people are there as well. Save yourself if you are the Christ. They are mocking Christ as well. And we see the religious leaders who should know better, but they really don't, and they finally mock Christ as well. So the first observation based upon this text, I think, is a powerful theological point. And that point is that the world in which we live is truly fallen. And the world in which we live is truly blind because what we have here, and we know this as New Testament Christians who believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the creator of the world who has burst into our existence in a mission of salvation, in a mission to take our sorrows and pains upon ourselves. He is the long-awaited, anointed one, the Messiah, who will come and deliver people from their sins. He is no one less than the Lamb of God. And yet all of humanity, whether it be dignitaries, whether it be religious leaders or the common person, they're joining in one chorus and what are they doing? They are so blinded and they are so fallen that the very one that they should worship, the very one that they should give their lives to, the very one that they should honor with all of their being, they are mocking him. And therefore, I think the first observation is the world in which we live is more fallen than we think. Oftentimes, we look at the good things of the world, and they are good because of God's grace, and we conclude the world isn't that bad. Yes, sometimes we see that grace and we can celebrate that grace, but from a broad perspective, the world is more fallen than we think, especially we who live in the West, who are a little more optimistic about the world. The world is truly fallen because it misses the point of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read the New Testament, and I read the teachings of Christ and how he interprets the Old Testament, um, and you compare that with the religious traditions of Jesus' day or the days of the Apostle Paul or anyone else, one of the conclusions that I have is I cannot believe the people at that point are so blind to the truth of God, to the truth of the mission of Christ and his love and who he is and what he's going to do. No one sees it. That's how fallen the world in which we live is. And therefore, no matter how you divide society, they're all here. And they are all joining in this refrain. And that refrain is to mock the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The second observation based upon this text is, this text is incredibly ironic. It is incredibly ironic. Um, so let's just talk about irony for a second. Irony is basically when you see, say, a police officer steal, the one who upholds the law, breaks the law, that's ironic. Um, a firehouse burning down, um, the firehouse who was supposed to stop fires, if it burns down, that's ironic. Uh, we see irony in this passage time and time again. Uh, the people mock Jesus because the charge against him, if you recall from last week, is that Jesus says he is the king of the Jews, and because of that, they are offended. Their religious sensibilities are offended, and because of that, this, this, this is blasphemy. They can't stand for it, and they're so angry at this that a condemned criminal, Barabbas, is um, made to be free. But the truth of the matter is this. He is the king of the Jews. In fact, it doesn't go far enough. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the king of the world. He is the creator of the world. And nothing that has come into being would be in being apart from Christ. And that's the theology of the gospel of John. Uh, the people are mocking Jesus of that. But behind that mockery lies the truth that Jesus is the king. How ironic then. They're mocking Jesus for something, but it is true. He is, and he is far greater than they could ever imagine. Now, look at this other irony. Imagine these 600 soldiers, uh, this, these Roman legionaries, with their weapons and their armor and their veterans, and they have experience in war, and they're battle-hardened, and they're kneeling down, paying homage to Christ in mockery. But you know what the Apostle Paul says when the Lord Jesus comes back? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They do so in a mocking fashion, but the truth of the matter is the whole world will bow their knee and they will worship and they will honor Jesus, the King. They're doing it in mockery, They'll do it in an act of worship in the future. Ironic. The irony continues. Uh, he is stripped of his clothing. Now this is a little more theological. Of course he's going to be stripped. He's going to be stripped of his robe of righteousness. He's going to be stripped of his works. He's going to be stripped of his good deeds as he becomes sin on our behalf. And what's he going to give us? Well, he's going to clothe us. And he's going to clothe us with his righteousness. He's going to clothe us with his love. He's going to clothe us with his work. And therefore we see irony once again. Now consider the, the chant of the people. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Now think about those words just for a moment because it's really incredibly ironic. It's precisely because Jesus did not save himself that he can save others. Right? It's because Jesus did not um, spare himself from the cross, uh, but embrace the cross, embrace the mockery, embrace our sin, that people are saved. So the very things that the people said here, he saved others, but he can't save himself. You know what? You flip it around, it's because he didn't uh, spare himself and save himself. That's why he is the savior of the world. The irony continues, though. 
you see that the religious leaders are there now, and the people who should know best, uh, they are the, 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 the most clueless, uh, come down from that cross right now that we might believe. Now, there seems to be some logic there. If Jesus came down, I'm sure some of them would believe. But I think they would be terrified at that point that they would not be able to believe. The person that comes to mind as I meditate upon this passage is someone like Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is religious leader. He's a Pharisee. We read about him in the Gospel of John. And uh, he's perplexed by this character, Jesus, because Jesus teaches like no one other because he has authority. And his teachings resonate with what he knows of the Hebrew Bible, yet there is power to it, and there is something fresh about it. And he doesn't really know what to make of Christ, and therefore he cannot come in the middle of the day lest he probably be seen by somebody else. So this is why every time that Nicodemus is mentioned with Jesus in the beginning of the Gospel of John, he comes on the cover of night. And it seems by the end of John, Nicodemus finally believes in Christ. He finally believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And therefore, this might be an example of a Pharisee who has come to faith. And if you ask Nicodemus, if we had the privilege to ask Nicodemus why he believes, I think Nicodemus would say, I believe because he didn't come down from the cross. Just the opposite of what the religious leader said here. Because Nicodemus would be thinking in his mind, if he came down from the cross, all there would be is wrath and judgment, and therefore there would be a belief, but that belief would end in judgment and death. But Nicodemus and others, like you and me and everyone else, has the courage to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why? Because he didn't come down from the cross, because he endured the cross. He took our shame. He took our sins. And what is given to us then is his forgiveness, which equals his love, the very thing that we need. Praise God then that he did not come down because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that triumphs over judgment that leads to repentance in our own life. And if you summarize all of this, the greatest irony perhaps is this. The one who is most honorable in our world the history of our world, the one who should be honored the most is actually honored the least. He is mocked more than any other. And if Jesus were not Jesus, if Jesus were not the Son of God, every fiber of his being will say, this is wrong. And he would write that wrong right there. But because he is our Savior, an incredibly long-suffering, and because he has his mission in his mind and he will not be deterred to the left or to the right, to the bitter end, not a word from his mouth. The one who should receive all honor, not a word from his mouth. Like the book of Isaiah says, silent and he breathes out his last, and he dies. So one irony is the one who ought to be most honored is least honored, but there's another irony based upon that. There's a double irony. Because Jesus went to death in silence for the glory of the Father and for the salvation of his people, we honor him even more now.
because of his grace, because of his forgiveness, because of his love. And when we bow our knees, it is a willing bow of our knees. And when we bow our knees, we say, this is right. And when we bow our knees, we say we are in the proper posture. And when we bow our knees to the one who is this glorious, our lives begin to make greater sense. Because we are in a rightful position. So when we look at the, the mockery of Christ, we see all these inbuilt ironies. And I think if we meditate um, upon this even more, there are very valuable implications for us. And what I want to do for the rest of um, today's message is to give you four implications um, based upon these, these ironies. And the reason why I want to give these things, because I think they're very important for the culture of our church. Um, and to be honest, I think it's uh, very important for the culture of all Christians. And if we can export this culture to the world as the salt and the light of the earth, then the world will be um, a better place. Well, what are these implications? Implication or application um, number one. Because this world has fallen, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you want to be God's man or God's woman, do not expect to be honored. I don't think I can make it um, simpler than that. If you want to be God's person in this world, do not expect to be honored. Rather, it should be the worst, expect to be mocked as God's people. Expect to be mocked. Now, how do I know this? I think um, theologically speaking, we can say, well, it's the, if it's the pattern of Christ, and I think that would be fair to say, and that would be theologically accurate to say. But I think we can prove this from another point of view. Um, if you were to ask me, um, John, what is the greatest message that you've ever heard? Well, maybe you can even be more challenging. John, what is the, the greatest message that you have ever heard or read? So you give me this histor long historical perspective, and I would look up in the air, and I would say, ah, I know what I would say. The greatest sermon that I've ever read, and you're probably reading my mind, it has to be one of the sermons of Jesus, right? <laughs> um, no one was a better preacher than Christ. And I would say, well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the greatest message that uh, was ever preached. Uh, we read it in the Gospels, and uh, one snippet of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. And let me recount um, some of the Beatitudes that Jesus, well, all of the Beatitude that Jesus says. He says, you are blessed, and I think we have a good warrant to also um, translate it as honored. You are honored if you are poor in spirit. You will be honored by God if you are poor in spirit. You will be honored by God if you mourn. You will be honored by God if you are meek. You will be honored by God if you hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. You will be honored by God if you are merciful. You will be honored by God if you are pure. You will be honored by God if you are a peacemaker and peacemaking. And you will be honored by God finally if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what Jesus says. I'm not making these words up. Now, I think it's fair to say that the world will not honor you if you were poor in spirit. I think it's safe to say that the world will not honor you if you mourn. They will think you're weak. Uh, the world will not understand you if you embrace meekness. They probably can't even define meekness because meekness doesn't even enter into our worldview anymore. What does it mean to be meek? The world will not love you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and shake up the world order. Uh, the world will think you are rather pitiful if you are merciful and you prize purity and seek to be a peacemaker at your own uh, sacrifice. And they will certainly not love you uh, for righteousness' sake, as the passage says, they will persecute you for righteousness' sake. I think it's safe to say that when we walk according to the straight and narrow that the Lord calls us to, it is not a path of honor. Now, here's where I think um, we need a little corrective, and that is, um, I think sometimes, um, especially in the West, um, the, the church wants to become like the world because we live in this world, and we usually see the, the great things of this world, and um, we don't have enough faith to realize that the best things are actually found in the church, and therefore we be, the church becomes more more worldly in a negative way. And when that happens, our value systems begin to shift and align with the world more and more. And therefore, we prize uh, people's talent and gifts more than their humility and their righteousness. We begin to uh, value uh, polish rather than the power of God. And therefore, we begin to honor people and things that the world begins to honor. And we need to ask the Lord to be merciful to us so that we would realize once again in this Lenten season that the path of God in this fallen world will not lead to worldly honor. And we have to get it into our minds uh, lest we fool ourselves that the world and the things of God are completely compatible. There are certain times it is compatible, so I don't want to draw a complete black and white picture but generally speaking, it's actually incompatible. And therefore, Jesus calls us to live uh, this type of life, the beatitude type of life. And when we do that, we must not expect to be honored from the world. And um, unless we have that mindset right from the beginning, there's going to be um, disillusionment. And therefore, one of my prayers is that we would be a church that understands this very important perspective. Now, here's a second application, and this is the perspective from um, Simon of Cyrene. Uh, Simon of Cyrene is mentioned in this passage, and 
I don't think anyone can say why um, he was chosen to carry the cross of Christ. There's nothing in this text that suggests why, nothing in the parallel text that suggests why he was chosen. Um, some people, um, historically speaking, said, you know, Christ saw a spark of compassion or faith and therefore Simon of Cyrene was selected. Um, I think that would be very hard to prove exegetically. Um, I think the best answer and the honest answer is that in God's providence, he chose this guy, Simon of Cyrene. We have no idea why. And it's probably safe to assume that Simon of Cyrene had no idea why he was chosen as well. Uh, what happened to Simon? No one really knows. But I think there is good warrant based upon this passage that he became a believer um, in Christ. And the reason why I think we can come to that conclusion is because the names of his two sons are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would Alexander and, be, and Rufus be mentioned in this passage? Probably because the original audience of the Gospel of Mark knew Rufus and knew Alexander. And therefore, Rufus and Alexander are within this circle of early believers, which means that their father was probably a believer and I think if we put that together, we can say safely that Simon of Cyrene, who bore the cross of Christ during Jesus' march to Golgotha, became an early believer. Now, imagine uh, you are invited uh, to Simon of Cyrene's house, and you're going to share a meal. And you know every time you go... He's going to share the story. The greatest privilege of my life. And it was a sheer act of God's grace. I was there at the right time and God chose me by his favor. Complete grace to carry the cross of Christ. Sons, never forget that. <laughs> And all you who are under my roof, never forget that the greatest honor of my life was to carry the cross of Christ. Do you think for a moment that there was any moment in Simon's life, man, I wish 15 years ago I didn't carry that cross. Do you think when he was dying, there's only one regret that I have. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time, and I carried the cross of Jesus, the Lord. I can guarantee you that that was not his regret, but it was his greatest honor. And there is insight there. When we, too, carry the cross of Christ, it might be scary. It might be difficult. It will most likely, no, certainly be inconvenient. But may the seasons pass. You will never regret shouldering the cross of Christ. Which gives us another great insight. What can you carry? What can you contemplate in this Lenten season um, about carrying? For the next season of your life. Uh, some of you guys are really forward-thinking and you have uh, your lives planned out into decades. Well, if so, then the Lord is challenging you. What can you shoulder for the next decade of your life? What can you do? It will be difficult. It will be inconvenient. But in the end, 
when you are an old man or an old woman, it will be guaranteed. It will be the greatest honor of your life. And therefore, the difficult things that the Lord calls us to do, the things that require faithfulness, look at them with a, a new perspective, with new eyes. They're opportunities. I'll say it again. Opportunities to carry the cross of Christ. Right? And that's what Jesus says, right? If you come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up the cross. That imagery of taking up the cross is one of discipleship, of deeper relationship with Christ. Building up Good News Church is an activity in cross-carrying. Being in missions is uh, a way we carry our cross. Being a good neighbor is cross-carrying. But it will be um, the greatest privilege of your life. And there are many, many then opportunities of um, carrying the cross. I think we, there's another application, though. Uh, we, we've seen it from the perspective of the world. That was the, my first application. We've seen it now from the perspective of Simon, of Cyrene. Now we can see it from the perspective of Christ. And uh, I think this is going to be very difficult to do, but I think what Jesus does here is this. If you look at um, the passion of Christ and you put together the seven sayings of Christ upon the cross, one of the things that he says is, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So I think if we take those words, Jesus struggling upon the cross, um, every breath he's just struggling, um, the weight of sin is being placed upon him and the wrath of God is about to be fully uh, placed upon Christ. And yet he says, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, which includes the religious leaders, which includes the common people, which includes uh, the legionaries, which includes from a time-space point of view, all of us. They do not know what they do. Forgive them. So on the one hand, Jesus is receiving this mockery, and what is he giving in return? He is honoring them. So I think another application of this is that we can honor those who do not honor us. And that would be very hard to do. But if we have that kind of heart uh, of honoring people who do not honor us, we will have a vibrant church. We will have a vibrant world. We will have vibrant relationships and uh, uh, vibrant families. If that DNA of honoring those who do not honor you is something dear um, to your heart, uh, which is basically what the Apostle Paul says, outdo one another in honor. Be zealous to honor one another more than you would honor yourself. And I think Jesus shows that um, in a very powerful way um, during his passion. And therefore, one application is, who can you honor? I think about that. That's, uh, that's the application of the year, in, in a sense, right? Who can you honor? You can apply that for the rest of your life. And uh, your heart will say, I can honor this person. It's going to be really awkward, but I think I can honor this person. And you'll do it, and you're like, wow, that's awesome. I feel so free. And you'll probably be a semi-honor-worthy person. But then there's going to be people who don't honor you, don't recognize you, give you a hard time. Can you honor them as well? And if you do, you become more and more like Christ. So in this season, why don't we think about who we can honor? 
uh, even those who mock us. And my final application um, is the perspective of the Father. Um, so I'm looking at this from a Trinitarian uh, perspective. How does God, the Father, view all of this? I think God the Father uh, sees uh, God the Son and honors him. We know this for a fact. Uh, this beautiful intertrinitarian dialogue from John chapter 17, uh, glorify me so that I may glorify you. There is an outdoing of honor here. And we see that merely three days later in the resurrection. There is an honor that abounds to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, like I said before, all knees will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So what's the application here? Uh, the application is this, and I, I think I'm a, a realist when it, when it comes to this. All the work that you do for the Lord, I wish I can say, people would see it, acknowledge it, and honor you for it. But the truth of the matter is, people won't. And you can get really discouraged. Uh, usually when a, a church is started, um, a church is tested in this way spiritually. And I think a new church plenty of times have been, has been tested in the past where people feel slighted and things like that. And therefore I think this perspective is very, very important. And that is the Father's perspective. And the Father's perspective is this. He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss any of your tears. He doesn't miss any of your effort, any of your devotion, any of your love. He misses none of it, absolutely none. And every time you serve and you love and you mourn and you are meek, and you are poor in spirit, and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and merciful and pure, and peacemaking, and persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Father sees. And one day, the only voice that ever matters will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. So what is the application we as believers in Jesus Christ, and I see this as one of the greatest challenges of the church in the West, we have to have a greater appetite for the future. We have to have a greater appetite for the eternal. We have to have a greater appetite for things unseen because they are more eternal than the things that are seen. Because if that is the case, we will continue to press on even if no one honors us for the work that we do because we know that God sees and he will honor us uh, because we will all stand before our master one day. And his words at that point are the only ones that ever matter. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Um, and I'm sure it was to the glory of God and to the glory of the Son. So in this Lenten season, let's spend some time uh, thinking about uh, 
the mocking of Christ and how we can take that in our own lives so that we can be the congregation and the people that the Lord wants us to be here in New York City. And the one word that I want to leave you with is um, opportunity. Opportunities abound. Uh, Opportunities abound to serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads as the worship team comes to lead us in a song of response.